Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sending your son for us. And thank you that he willingly came and bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to you. Father, we thank you for uh, your mercy towards us. And Father, as we continue to come before you and praise you and worship you, I pray we would do so now as we look into your word, that uh, you would uh, convict our hearts if there's any sin, that we would be right before you, that we would humbly be ready to receive your word and allow it to do its work in our hearts. I pray for those who don't know you, Lord God, that today might be the day of salvation. And I pray for those of us who do, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you now in your Son's precious name. Amen. Well, we're all aware of the realities of life that every day we've got uh, probably priorities. We've got a list of things we might have to accomplish, whatever it might be. There are things that we have to do every single day in this life. And sometimes we can be burdened by those things, wondering about the next day or the next day or whatever it might be, the things that we have to do, the things that are in our lives. Now I want to ask you, are your priorities in order? Ask myself that. Are our priorities in order? And why do I bring this up? Because this life is moving quickly. Uh, James says that it's just a vapor. It's like the smoke on a kettle that just appears for a second and is gone. If you've lived long enough, you'll realize that there are people around you that have passed away into eternity. The reality is we only live for a number of years and that is it. And it goes quick. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 12 for a moment, I want to share something before we get to our main passage. Luke chapter 12. As we look at what Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Come, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Well, look at what the Lord Jesus says. But God said, and quoting him says, But God said to him, You fool! It's emphatic. This very night your soul is required of you. The reality is each and every one of us that someday our souls will be required of us. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, for this reason, I said, you do not be anxious for your life. And he goes on to say, basically, in the next few verses, that God's going to supply all those needs. And then look down in verse 30. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. That's the basics of life. He says, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom, and all these things shall be added to you. There are many things in life that can distract us from what we need to be seeking. Something's very small, something's very large and difficult. Whether it's a disease or whether it's just a a job thing or a family situation, whatever it is. Some very large, some very small. So what are our priorities? We need to examine that. What are our priorities in life? And then with that in mind, what is truly important in life? What is truly the most important thing in this life for us. We're going to continue a little break here from our study of First Peter, and I felt it right to remind you of these truths in Ephesians chapter 1. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1. It's been a long time since we looked at this, over 10 years. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 23. This is a very important passage because it sets the, the groundwork for the application of the great truths that God has revealed concerning the Ephesians and how they apply to us in our lives. Now, a little context. 
Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and, and although he is writing directly to them, some believe that it's possibly a circular letter for that area because they found manuscripts that left out the term Ephesians, and it probably went around to other churches. But primarily, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and he knows them well. And the Apostle Paul had visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey, Acts chapter 18. And during his third missionary journey, he stayed there for three years, Acts chapter 19. And he taught daily the word at the school of Tyrannus for two years. His influence for Christ, Acts 19.20, was so great that the Artemis idol makers basically incited a riot against him, chapter 19. And after leaving Ephesus, beginning of chapter 20 of Acts, he ministered in Macedonia. And while on his way back to Jerusalem, Paul stopped in Miletus and sent for the Ephesian elders to share a tearful farewell and give his final words, Acts chapter 20. This would be the last personal contact that Paul would have with the Ephesian elders. He then wrote this letter to the saints in Ephesus, believers. While he was under house arrest in Rome approximately five years later, 63-ish A.D., Now, the immediate context, after giving a greeting, Paul praises God for the spiritual blessings that we believers have in the heavenlies. Those blessings, first of all, that come through the Father, then the blessings that come through the Son, and those through the Spirit of God. And it's from this point he jumps from there to a tremendous prayer that we're going to look at today. Again, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 15 to 23. Verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of his, these are in accordance with the working of his strength, the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, his right hand in heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now today I believe we're going to see the reason for Paul's prayer and then his request specifically and then the desired result, what Paul, inspired by the Spirit, desires us and his readers then to to take home from this passage. With that in mind, let's look at the reason for this prayer. Verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers tremendous statement the main phrase here in the statement is do not cease giving thanks that's really it in the beginning of 16 for this reason i do not cease giving thanks and with that in mind what reason is he talking about dia tattoo what reason draws paul to not cease giving thanks for these believers in ephesus Well, I think there's two reasons, but the first one comes from before, and the second one will come from after that term for this reason. Look back at uh, verse 3 of chapter 1. We have this tremendous panoply of praise for what God has done in the Father and the Son and in the Spirit, all separated by this phrase, to the praise of His glory. Look at uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Praise the Lord. Tremendous reality. That's the the summary statement. Blessed be God who has blessed us with these tremendous spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. He says with every spiritual blessing, not not a few, every. And he says just as, now this is about the Father, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Tremendous reality. 
we were chosen to be holy and blameless. And then he says, in love, uh, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We were chosen to be holy and blameless. We were adopted as, as children of God. Tremendous realities. And then notice he speaks about the blessings in the Son, um, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In the beloved, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's speaking of Jesus. The forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ we have been redeemed. The price has been paid. We have forgiveness of sins. Tremendous reality. Tremendous reality. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Isn't that wonderful? In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view toward an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we are that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be, should be to the praise of his glory. That same phrase again. Now, verse 13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That seal, that's, that's a, a mark, a, a mark of his ownership of us. Sealed with him in the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge, that's a down payment to the completion of, of the, the job of salvation for us. As a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Tremendous, wonderful realities concerning what God has done for us through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all in relationship to our salvation. Tremendous realities that bring Paul to his knees. For this reason, I don't cease giving thanks. I don't cease giving thanks. It points back to the wealth of spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Do these truths permeate your mind? We need to see it that way. These are spiritual realities. They are understood by faith based on the declaration that God has made in his word. We need to renew our hearts and minds in the midst of this world which is crumbling before us, in the midst of the difficulties that are, that are put before us on a daily basis. We need to remember that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. True believers have this tremendous reality which applies to them. And then there's another reason which comes from this. Look at verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in our prayers. I don't cease giving thanks because of these tremendous blessings. I don't cease giving thanks because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love that exists for the saints. You know, many people can say, I've trusted Jesus, I know Jesus, but if there's no fruit, there's nothing blessed about that it doesn't cause you to praise god i praise god for this person well there's no fruit at all that he even knows you but i praise him that he knows you well maybe he doesn't know you the reality is he praises god for true believers who have trusted in christ and there is fruit in their lives to show they have a real relationship with jesus christ tremendous reality real fruit they have faith in the lord jesus christ and love for his people in a nutshell, he's praising God for their changed lives. If you truly come to Jesus, you are a new creation in Christ. You are a different person. You are not who you used to be. Now, we are tempted by that old man or woman, but we are not that person. There should be a distinct change in our lives. We've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins. And God has entered into us through his spirit. We have the spirit indwelling in us. There should be a change. Now, these changed lives begin with faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you. Having heard, completed action. I, I, I've heard this reality. True faith is is in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not in a system. It's not in a prayer. 
It's not in some etherical thought of God somewhere. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture as fully God and fully man. True faith is in Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 Paul shares it this way concerning genuine faith. Look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. The Apostle Paul is addressing the issue of the Jews who had rejected Christ, who were in current rejection. And he makes it clear that they heard the the, the truth, and he uses a quote from Deuteronomy, and he goes from there to springboard and apply that to the context of Christ who had come. Romans chapter 10, excuse me, verse 8. Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? And he's quoting Deuteronomy. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, it's Jesus, will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You have not been saved if you haven't had true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. If you've not placed your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you have not humbled yourself as a child, recognizing your sin and need for salvation. True faith is in a person. The person of Jesus Christ. It's not in a system. It's not in a, in a rote prayer. It's in the person of of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying you, you couldn't have prayed one of those rote prayers and actually placed your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that that's possible. But the point is, true faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who met God's requirements. He is fully God and fully man. You see, we're in trouble as human beings. We're in trouble because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is a holy God and he will judge sin. We're in deep trouble, each and every one of us. But God loved us so much that he sent his son. He sent his son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. His son came, took on human flesh, lived the perfect life, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, died on the cross bearing our sins in his body. And he rose from the dead on the third day. And when you look upon Jesus Christ putting your faith in him... He will save you. He will save you. Now this faith also includes the idea of repentance. Faith and repentance are on the same side, of the one, on opposite sides of the same coin. When the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead on the third day and was talking to the disciples after the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, he says that repentance, verse 47, for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed. In Mark chapter 1:14, after John had been taken into custody, Mark writes, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, here's the gospel, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. When we place our faith genuinely in Jesus Christ, we are turning from our sins, no power to stop, but turning to God for forgiveness from those sins. We are recognizing our sinfulness and turning to the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who is indeed the Savior of the world. Changed lives begin with true faith in Jesus Christ. Have you truly seen your need for salvation? Have you truly turned to Jesus Christ for salvation from your sins? You know, if you were drowning out in the ocean and someone threw you a life vest and you were drowning, you would have to take that. There's no other way to be saved or you're going under. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. It is through Jesus Christ. You need to recognize your desperate eternal condition because today could be your last day. You could take your last breath today and you will stand before a holy God. And if you're in your sins, he will judge you because he's holy. But if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness is applied to you 
and you are righteous because of Christ, because the price has been paid and he has brought forgiveness of sins. True faith begins with faith in Jesus Christ. True, true faith is in the context of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, Paul praises them, praises, not praises, praises God, excuse me, for the faith they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is in Jesus. Do not hold your, your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. James chapter 2, our faith is in Jesus. But genuine faith will also produce something. Because if we are genuinely changed by Jesus, there's going to be a change in our lives. And look at what also he praises them for back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists for you, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, and your love for all the saints. So many people say, I've accepted Jesus. But their lives betray that reality. Their lives betray that reality. There is a manifestation of a true relationship when you have been delivered from darkness to light, and that manifestation is love for the body of Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Luke 6. Verse 43. For there is no, this is Jesus speaking, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree which produces, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree shall be, is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Good trees don't produce bad fruit. Bad trees don't produce good fruit. The analogy is quite simple. And he is reproving them because they would say, Lord, Lord, but they are not doing what he said. The fruit is not right. The fruit is not right. Some of you may say that Jesus is my Lord, but the fruit does not match a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is gracious. And one of the main fruits of a relationship with Jesus Christ is what we see Paul saying over and over again, which is a love for the saints. It's something you did not have before you came to Christ and something that God brings about. Back in our passage, having heard of the faith which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks. It's agape love. It's an action. It's not a feeling. It's the action of self-sacrifice in the context of his truth and obedience to him. Do you remember a long time ago when we went through 1 Thessalonians 4, 9? That Paul says, hey, I don't need to teach you about love. I don't need to teach you. It's innate to who you are. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.9. 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Now as to the love of the brethren, that's a phileo love, a brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to agape one another. God is the one who brings that about in our lives. God is the one that brings that. It's innate to our new nature. It is when sin gets in the way that we stop loving or our love grows cold. It's when sin gets in the way. Selfishness, selfish ambition, self-focus. But those who do not know Christ have never loved and cannot love because they don't know the God of love. Let me share some verses that reveal in a true relationship with Christ, we will love when we abide in him and obey his word and his word abides in us. Turn to 1 John. We've been going through this on, on uh, Wednesday nights. We're just about to get there. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. First John 3. Verse 10. This is the theme of what John is really getting across, that if you've been born in, in, in Christ, you've been born again, you're going to exhibit a new nature. 
By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Okay, here's how you can spot it. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, and the one who does not love his, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Verse 13, do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. If you have a love from God for the body of Christ, and by the way, it's got to be from God because we are such sinners. If you have a love for the body of Christ, it is an evidence, not a self-fake love. There's a lot of self-fake love that really elevates self by what they get out of relationships in the body of Christ. I'm talking about a genuine self-sacrificial love that comes from God. If you have that, he says here, we know we have passed out of death into life. We've been saved because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, I wish I could read more, but go to 1 John 4, 7, up another chapter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves, this is how you can tell. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the satisfaction. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also ought to love one another. And then go down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Now this love is just not a feeling for one another. It's in the context of a love for God and an obedience to his word. You see, the evidence that I love you is that I obey God's word in relationship to you. That's the evidence, that I obey God's word. Not that I'm doing stuff that I think and categorize as love, but God's word by his spirit is working in my heart, changing my desires, and thus as I obey him, I'm loving you. And let me show you that. Look at uh, 2 John uh, verse... Actually, look at 1 John 5 first, just up a little bit. 1 John 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is born, Jesus is the Christ, born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this, look at this, by this we know we love the children of God. Here's how you can know if you love your brothers and sisters. When we love God and observe his commandments, or his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And whoever is born of God overcomes the world That's our old selfishness and self-focus. We overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Then go to 2 John, uh, verse 4. 2 John, verse 4. John writes, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. It's walking the word of God. Just as we have received the commandment to do so from the Father. Verse 5. And now I ask you, lady, not as writing a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. We walk according to his word in relationship to his people. That's what love is. Because God is a God of love and his commands are are innately loving for us between one another. One other passage, John chapter 15, verse 12. John 15. And it's impossible to love this way apart from God changing your heart. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, Jesus says to his disciples. Just as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? He obeyed the Father perfectly. He trusted him, entrusted himself 
completely. He obeyed him according to his, his will. He walked according to his will in relationship to the disciples and loved them as we see. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You can say and think you love God's people all day long, but if you are disobedient to his word, you don't love them. You don't love them. It's really that, that clear. We have so many passages in Scripture in relationship to how we are to interact with one another. So many passages concerning how we are to serve one another. So many passages concerning how we come together, whatever it might be. If we're not obeying that from the heart, it's an evidence of a self-love rather than a love for the Lord. Love cannot be separated from obedience to the Lord. Paul was so thankful back in our passage. So thankful. So thankful for the fruit of a real relationship with Jesus Christ, which was love. We see even that love poured out. Actually, one last passage. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. One last passage. We're going to see the encouragement to love and then the mindset to love, which is the mindset Christ had. Philippians chapter 2. And the way this is written in Greek, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and yes, there is, that's the answer is inherent in the Greek language there. If there's any consolation of love, and yes, there is. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, yes, there is. Any affection, compassion, yes, there is. If these things are true, and they are. He says here, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. Same love. Maintaining the same love. United in spirit, intent in one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's the mindset. And notice the mindset has to do with humility and obedience, by the way. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you are disobedient to the commands in relationship to the body of Christ, you are walking in pride. We need to humble ourselves and obey the Lord. And we'll see that is a manifestation of love. If Paul were to write and think of you, would he say he praises God for your faith in Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints? Would he be able to say that based on what is seen in your life? Take a look at your schedule. What occupies your heart and mind? Is your time occupied in the things of your own life? Certainly there are things we have to do. There's things we need to do that God understands that. We know that. But when we follow the Lord, those things are not in contradiction. Take a look at your life. Are you focused on serving the body of Christ in whatever way? I'm not talking about a schedule on the side of the wall where I go this time. Is your heart geared towards loving the saints? Or is it geared towards loving yourself? Listen to this warning from the writer of Hebrews concerning those who exhibit a lack of love. Love. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. A lack of love as exhibited by not being together. It's really obvious. If you say you love your wife and you're never with your wife, hmm, what's that mean? If you say you love the body of Christ, you're never around, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart to the full assurance of, in a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And he says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let us consider how to do that together, for, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And notice he has a qualification. Not 
forsaking our own assembling together. You can't love and stimulate one another to love and good deeds if you're not together. As is the habit of some. And by the way, it's the habit of some that even claim to come here. I'll tell you that right now. It's the habit of some. But encouraging one another, you've got to be around. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I'm talking about officially being forced to come here. I don't want to see everybody coming now because I said this, but because of a heart change. And he says there, as you see the day drawing near, verse 28, for explanation, if we go on sinning willfully, the context is not loving and because we're not together. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but the certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which consumes the adversaries. If love is not manifest in your life as evidenced by your actions, maybe you are on your way to judgment. If you've truly come to faith, there's a change. Now, given believers can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and we need to pray. Have I been hardened? I need to, we need to confess. We need to be forgiven as we confess to Christ. Okay, so change lives begin with faith in Christ, and it's going to be evidenced in a love for his people and obedience to Christ and his word. Now, with this in mind, let's take a look at the request back in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1. Verse 15, For this reason I, too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Notice the context for this prayer, first of all. It's thankfulness. It's thankfulness. Verse 16, he does not cease giving thanks for you. You know, when you see true salvation in a person, it brings you to give God praise and glory. When you see someone who is truly walking with Christ, it should draw you to your knees to be thanking him for them. Just in the same light, when you see that those who don't evidence it, it's a burden, and we pray. There's a joy when you see people following Jesus Christ. There's a joy in that. There's a blessing in that. And it should cause us to give thanks. And Paul doesn't cease giving thanks. Paul had no room in his heart for complaining, by the way. And he says later on do, in Philippians to do everything, nothing without, no, do everything without complaining and grumbling. Paul was so thankful for God's work in their lives. What brings you to pray? Are you thankful? Are you thankful? What are you thankful for? Are you thankful for the wealth of spiritual blessings God has bestowed upon believers that we are privileged to fellowship with and serve together? Paul was so thankful. He was so thankful. But notice his request now. Verse 16, And do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the request, the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He says, and he addresses his prayer uh, to the God of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He is praying to the Father, obviously, by the Spirit, through the Son, as we'll see. He says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that has thrown some people off. Wait a second, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ? I thought Jesus Christ is God. Well, yes, you are correct. God the Son is God. He is God the Son who took on human flesh. But why does Paul say the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory? I think he's pointing to the example that we see. When God the Son took on humanity, he fully submitted to the Father. The Son became perfectly dependent and obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And although fully God, Jesus in his humanity depended on the Father. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. In that sense, we see the, Jesus relying on the Father as we rely on him, as he did in his, humi his humility. Remember when he was on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he was bearing our sins. Notice he is also called the Father of glory. It could be translated glorious Father. Either way, God is the originator of all glory. Obviously the Father of glory, but he is also the glorious Father. So here's the request. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This is a tremendous request. This is what Paul is praying for true believers that know Jesus Christ. That he may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Now there's some different versions here that have some different nuances to them. For instance, the NASB says, and the New King James says, a spirit of wisdom, small s, spirit. The NIV uses the large s, a spirit of wisdom, as speaking of the Holy Spirit. So which one is right? Is he praying that they would receive the spirit of wisdom or spiritual wisdom and understanding? Well, I think the NIV has misunderstood this here, that they're mistaken because just two verses earlier, three verses earlier, he's already made it clear that we've received the spirit already. He doesn't pray that we receive the spirit, the spirit of wisdom, that they might receive the spirit of wisdom. No, we have the spirit of God. We have the spirit of God. So I think the NASB and the New King James are more uh, close to it, that it is spirit, uh, spiritual in a sense. And also in Greek, and this, you don't need to understand this, but it's probably an attributive genitive. You could translate it this way, spiritual wisdom and revelation. A spirit of wisdom, spirit of revelation, spiritual wisdom and revelation. Certainly possible. And I think the idea here is that God might give to you spiritual wisdom and revelation as we see in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As we're going to see, it is the Spirit of God that brings forth and illumines the truth of God concerning Christ. It is the Spirit of God, as Jesus said, He will glorify me, right? We see that in John chapter 16. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2. Spiritual wisdom comes from the Spirit of God, and they cannot be disconnected. They cannot be disconnected. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Corinthians who are so prideful about the people they're following, and they're good people. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, this and that. But Paul's got to bring them back down to reality. We're nothing. We're nothing. We're just servants whom God used. And uh, within that, he shares an illustration of his own coming to them in humility that he didn't come with superior to his speech proclaiming the testimony of God, that their faith wouldn't rest on, on men, but on the power of God. And then he goes to explain the type of wisdom that he did come to the Corinthians with, and this is verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2.6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, look at this, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. We've received the Spirit of God. That we might know the things freely given to us by God. In context, it's his wisdom. We've received his spirit that we might know his wisdom that's been given to us. In things, in which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. But a natural man, that's a non-believer, verse 14, does not accept the things of the spirit for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them for they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known what God is thinking? He says that we should instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. God has revealed his wisdom by his spirit in his word, and we can know that now. And Paul's prayer is that they might be given a spiritual wisdom 
and revelation, apocalypto, uncovering, revealing, a spiritual disclosing or uncovering in the knowledge, and here's the request, in the knowledge of him. That's the most important part. Intense, intimate, true knowledge, epinosis of Christ. And it comes through spiritual wisdom and revelation. That's what Paul's praying. And Paul's priority in his life was knowing Christ. He says in Philippians 3, he counted all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If you think about it, we have a chance to know relationally the God of the universe who created everything, who died for us. We can know him and grow in a relationship with him. It should be the most important thing as we will see in our lives. And everything else will fall into place as we learn to, to grow in him and know him better. We have the tremendous reality of knowing Christ. And that's the goal, by the way, of my, the teaching here. As a pastor teacher, whatever it might be, turn to Ephesians 4 for a second. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we obtain, this is the goal, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You know, we don't come just to learn doctrine. We don't come just to learn truth by itself. We come to learn about the person of Christ and grow in him. We come to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus made this clear what eternal life is in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life. It's his, in his high priestly prayer. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is tied up in a relationship with the God who gives all life. The self-existent one. Knowing him. Walking with him. He has condescended to open himself up to us and reveal himself to us through his son. He has explained him. He has explained him. What do you pray for? Does the genuine faith of believers around you cause you to pray that they would know Jesus better through the word of God, as we'll see, through the word of God, by the Spirit? Does it cause you to do that? We'll see that we understand and we gain the spiritual wisdom and revelation through simply the truth of God. It is God's word by the Spirit that illumines our hearts to know him better. We know in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's God breathed. He's speaking to us through his word. And it is profitable for, 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 for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we would be adequate, equipped for every good work. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of his sons, 2 Peter chapter 1. For by these precious and magnificent promises promises how do we get to know people in relationships we talk to them we listen to them we hear their heart we hear what, and god is perfect and what he says relate, reflects his heart perfectly with this in mind we need a humble dependence if it's through spiritual wisdom and understanding that we know him better we need to recognize this is the means and paul is praying for this you know, I hear at times people saying, just let God work on them. They'll grow up eventually. Well, that's maybe true. That's maybe not true. The reality is God works through prayer in the context of his word. And we need to pray for one another. Pray for those you know, especially your family. Pray for each other. Lord, I pray because they do know you. And I praise you for that. And I'm so thankful that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of your son that they would grow in the spiritual wisdom and understanding from your word that they might know him better. Paul relied on the Lord to change them. And he had a prayerful heart, a dependent heart. And by the way, prayer reveals dependence. So we tend to go out and just do what we think we can do. If you're not praying, you're not dependent. Lord God, I can't do this. I can't preach. I cannot teach your word of God. You have to bring it through me. It is impossible that I trust you to do so. 
Lord, I can't love my wife. I can't love my husband. I can't do these things. Lord God, I'm trusting you to do it through me. Lord God, I can't do my job. I can't do it. I'm trusting you, Lord God, to do it through me. I trust you, Lord God. So we need to have dependent prayer, and we need to be in God's word. If you want to know Jesus Christ, you want to know him better, you've got to be in his word. Not mechanically, not mechanically, but truly desiring to know him. Sitting at his feet, listening from him personally through the word of God. Turn to Luke chapter 10. You know, there are a lot of things we have to do, and some are, are, are we've got to do them. We've got to do them. We can get caught up in it. The daily realities of life and, and the stuff that we have to do. And those things don't go away. But we should have a priority in those things. A priority in those things. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. We need to choose the good thing. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village that's speaking of Jesus, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who moreover was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. Personally listening to him, right? Seated at his feet. How often do you listen to his word seated at his feet in your hearts? Is it just some Bible verse you're reading or is it God speaking to you through his word? And he says here, But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary. Really, only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. What did she choose? She was sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his word. This passage isn't saying you don't go to work, you don't do other things. It's not in contradiction to the truth of God. It's a hard attitude of trusting in him and learning from him, listening to him, sitting at his feet. If you do this, all the rest will fall in place. If you seek to know him, walk with him personally, all the rest will fall in place. Lord God, what do I do here? What do I do with this call? What do I do with this situation? Lord God, what do I do? Help me. Help me have wisdom. Help me to do it. I trust you. Listen to his word. We have the glorious opportunity to intimately know the God of the universe. And it's by faith now. We're squandering that time so much. Paul prays that they would, in the context of spiritual wisdom and revelation, it's God's word by the spirit, that they would know Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? We need to get back to basics and sit at the Lord's feet. How are you doing? Is your heart just geared towards these things? Geared toward a personal relationship with Jesus, wanting to know him? When you come to the message, are you, are you expecting to hear from him through his word and, 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 and respond to him personally? He prays that they would have the knowledge of him, the intimate knowledge. That's what I pray. You would grow in that. That's what he prays. And we should pray that for one another. Notice as we conclude, we have the basis for this prayer. Look in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, in your NASB, if you have it, you'll see the term, I pray that in italics. Often in a translation, when they put it in italics, they are saying these exact words are not in the original Greek, but we believe as we translate it, this will help you understand what the original author intended. And sometimes, most of the time, I'd say, most of the time those italic words really do aid to the translation, I would say 99% of the time. Well, maybe 80%. But sometimes they don't. And it's good to look at other versions because other versions might translate things differently. And I think sometimes... Uh, they do. Actually, in this passage, this, this, this term may be enlightened. It's in, a, it's in a perfect tense in Greek. What does that mean? Perfect participle. What does that mean? It means something that has happened in the past that continues to the present. You could translate it this way. Having had the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that something. So I don't think he's praying that they would have their eyes enlightened. 
I think the New King James gets it better. Having had them enlightened so that something would happen. You see, if we've come to Jesus Christ, our eyes have been opened. We've been enlightened. We've been enlightened. We see now. We were blind. Now we see. And because of that, when we grow in the knowledge of Jesus, there's going to be some results. Some results. Some results. Having our eyes opened, enlightened, photizo. We now see. We now see. There's going to be some results. Look at the results here, the desired results, so that they would know three things. You could do it this way. That God might give you spiritual wisdom, revelation, the knowledge of him, having had your eyes enlightened, so that you may know, one, what is the hope of his calling, two, what is the riches, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, three, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. When we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus through the word of God, these things become larger and larger. We then understand these three truths more deeply. You see, if we don't grow in our knowledge of Christ, we're not going to understand these things. So that you may know, you may understand, you may know, it's a, it's a, it's a Greek word that means comprehend, comprehend by experience. Comprehend by experience. Three things. What's the first one? What is the hope of his calling? You see, when you get to know Jesus better and better, you start to know the hope of his calling in a real sense. I can know it theologically, but I don't know it in my heart. What is the hope of his calling? We saw in chapter 1, we were called to be holy and blameless. But there's a hope in that. There's a hope in that. Let me share some verses here. There's a hope in that what God is going to accomplish, what God is going to accomplish. 2 Timothy chapter 1, turn to 2 Timothy 1. Actually, I'm just going to read it for you since for time's sake. We've been called with a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13. We've been called through the gospel that we may gain the glory of Christ. 1 Timothy 6, 12. Take hold of the eternal life, he tells Timothy, to which you were called. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. The hope of our calling is the consummation of our salvation where we're glorified. That we would know this experientially, what that hope is. Paul will say later on, there is one hope of your calling, chapter 4. One hope. You see, when Jesus called us out of darkness into light, we were transitioned from the kingdom of darkness into light. We were redeemed. The price was paid. But these bodies weren't changed. And God will someday redeem us, redeem our bodies. We have this tremendous hope of our calling. And as you get to know Jesus better, it becomes more prevalent in your mind. Notice the second one, the incredible worth that we have before him. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Paul is speaking of his inheritance, not ours. We have an inheritance, but this is his inheritance. The glorious riches of his inheritance. What is his inheritance? What did Jesus receive after he rose from the dead? What did he receive and inherit through his death? Us. One pastor writes, The glorious wealth of his inheritance in the saints has been alluded to, according to which believers have claimed and claimed by God as his portion in Christ, where God will redeem his possession in the day of, in the day of consummation, that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition, still bearing too many traces of their former state, might well seem incredible if it not were that he sees them in Christ. It's because of Christ that we have value. It's because of Christ shedding his blood that we have value. The incredible, glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. Where do you look to find your worth? Work, family, church, service, seminars, counseling, counseling radio shows. Where do you look to find your value? 
Our value is tied up in the person of Jesus Christ who died for us and rose from the dead. Feeling worthless? You've lost sight of your Savior who gave himself for you. Last one, the incredible power and strength available to us. So when we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we we will begin to comprehend what is the hope of our calling, and then we will begin to understand the incredible worth we have as his inheritance, and lastly, the incredible power available to us now in Christ. Verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe, or the believing ones? Surpassing greatness, this term in Greek, Hooper Ballon Megaphos. And that sounds pretty cool, right? It means the surpassing greatness. This tremendous amount, so much so. What is this Hooper Ballon Megaphos of his power towards the believing ones? Tremendous. As we'll see, it's power to walk in a manner worthy. It's power to walk with him. It's power to endure. It's strengthened with all power. It's power to do what he calls us to do when we believe what he says. He will unleash his power towards us to obey him when we trust him. We're going to see in a minute, it's resurrection power. It's the same power that is available. And when you get to know Jesus Christ closely, you begin to trust him that he will manifest his strength in your life to accomplish what he has called you to do. You begin to believe that and God does it. Let me share a couple passages really quick. Ephesians chapter 3. Turn there. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Now the prayer of Paul, he closes out the section in chapter 3 with another prayer. For this reason I bow my knees, verse 14, before the Father in whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to what? Be strengthened with all power through his spirit in the inner man. When you get to know Jesus through the word of God, one of the things that is a result so that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us. So that you, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Notice it's connected with Christ. That you may be filled up to the all fullness of God. Now to him is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the, through the true knowledge of, of, of him. Seeing that his divine power, 2 Peter chapter 1, 3, his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. When you understand the resurrection power of Christ in you, but you won't see it, you won't believe it, you won't understand it until you get to know Christ. Until you get to know Christ. And lastly, he describes what this power did. Look at uh, just after that portion, back in uh, chapter... Uh, 1 verse 19, second half. These, speaking of that surpassing power, are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought up about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's resurrection power. And seated him at the right hand of heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, dominion. That's everything. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This power that put Christ back to where he came from as supreme Lord of all. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's praying that they would, through spiritual wisdom and revelation, know Jesus better. So that they would know what is the hope of their calling, the incredible value of his inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of his power towards us. You know, we flounder so often when we know what God wants us to do and we just go, ah, we need to know Jesus better. Trust him that he will empower us to walk in a manner where he gives the strength to do that. But it's all tied up in knowing Christ. In Christ, we have hope, we have worth, 
and strength. Everything we need. Everything we need. And it's all tied up in the knowledge of him through spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what's really important? What is the good thing? We need to sit at the Lord's feet. We need to learn more from him through his word about him. That we might know these things and apply these things in our lives as we walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is such an encouragement. And we fail so often, Lord God. We, we flounder, we lose sight of truly who you are and who your son is. I pray we would have been encouraged today to sit at your son's feet, to learn from him, to do the good part, and to walk with him and to know these things, that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of your son, that we would know what is the hope of our calling and what is the glorious riches of his inheritance in us and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Lord God, help us not to seek those things, but to seek Christ and then to trust him. Lord, I pray for anyone here who knows in their heart of hearts they don't love, that they don't know you, ultimately, no matter what they say, that you convict them of their sin, but also of your great love and grace and mercy. They turn to Christ and be saved. Father, thank you for your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.